All right. Uh, let's open our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. If you've been uh, involved in Sunday school over the last couple months, this is a book that hopefully by now is quite familiar to you. And we're going to hear again from God through this part of his word uh, tonight, Titus 3. There is a handout, and it's a multi-page handout, but don't let that uh, discourage you. We're only going to look at the front of the first page uh, tonight. The rest is a resource that I'll explain more about in just a moment. But if you don't have the handout, uh, my son, the birthday boy, Luke, uh, has extra copies. And his birthday was yesterday, not today, but you can still wish him happy birthday if you want. So just raise your hand, and Luke will bring you uh, the handout if you need one. There's a couple more here, Luke. Now that he's nine, he is quick to find the hands and bring the hand up to you. Uh, So keep your hands up. Luke will find you. And uh, we're in in Titus 3. So regarding this handout, as I said, the first first page, just the one side, the front side of the first page, is what we will work our way through tonight. As you'll see, there are no blanks to fill in. Um, You can use this to follow along as we go. And then the rest of it is a resource that uh, an acquaintance, a a pastor friend out in Grand Rapids named Jason Shea, that he provided for us. Uh, Pastor Jason Shea recently taught on this topic at our state association conference uh, just yesterday, actually, out in Grand Rapids. And their church, uh, where he pastors, is, is part of our state association. And so I provide this, well, he provides this for us. And as I looked through it, I thought, this might be just a really helpful tool for discipleship. So we're not going to look at pages 2, 3, and 4 of the handout tonight, uh, but maybe you'll hang on to this, and I think it's best to work through with somebody who knows you well. I think it's best to work through with somebody who knows you well, but not tonight, at least not in the next uh, 40 minutes or so, so we'll just look at the the front, all right? We are in Titus 3, and uh, we're going to hear from God. Uh, In just a moment, as we read from Titus 3, our topic, as you can see, is political engagement as a Christian. And maybe you're wondering, why this topic and why now? Well, why this topic? Because it's part of our lives. It's an area of our discipleship. Part of following Jesus is recognizing his lordship over everything, and that would include this area of our lives. And and why now? Well, why not now? Why not now? Uh, but practically speaking, we wanted to do our best to think about this biblically. Maybe when the political intensity in our society is not quite as high as it might be, say, in the, like toward the end of next year. Okay. Uh, but if we can really try to focus and, and with a, a calm mind, hear from God uh, and apply it to this, to this topic now, then that will hopefully prepare us well when temptation increases, uh, which it, it's probably, it probably will do. Let's pray, and then, uh, and then we'll look into Titus 3. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that it is timeless. And we thank you that it is timely. And I pray that what I share and what we see and hear from you uh, tonight would be true and clear and biblical. Lord, we want to uh, submit to your leadership in every area of our lives, including this one. What a stewardship you've given to us. So help us to be faithful stewards in this area. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.
Back in the 16th century, shortly after the Reformation began, uh, a group of Protestants in Germany composed a catechism. The catechism is a series of questions and answers. And this catechism was meant to summarize the most important truths of the Christian faith. So each truth, each question and answer was supported by scripture. And it was designed for churches to use on Sundays during their gatherings. So there were 52 sections of this catechism. And that was designed for the 52 Sundays of a year. It was first published in Heidelberg, Germany. So it's the Heidelberg Catechism. And maybe you know uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. We recently as a church learned a song that was taken from this truth. So the question from question one of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? Let's read it together. That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Does your engagement with politics confirm that you believe that? As I try to help us think biblically about political engagement, I have three categories for us to consider. You see this on your handout. The first category is our identity. Do we really believe what we just said? That our only hope, our only hope, is that we belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 3, uh, let's begin reading in verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. If I were to outline this short passage, I would say verse 3 is who we were. Verses 4 through 6 now is what God did. So let's hear again what God did. Verse 4. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's what God did for us. And now in verse 7, I would outline this, who we are now. This is who we are now, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As we think about our engagement in politics, we should start by remembering our identity. Who we were, what God did, who we are now. So our only hope in life and death is not certain policies, certain candidates. That's not our only hope in life and death. Our only hope is that we who were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, God intervened, and now we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, we say that, and we ought to say that. We confess that with our mouths. Uh, but, but how do political issues affect you? Do you ever find yourself being more than discouraged, but maybe even in despair over what's happening politically? 
Or on the reverse side, do you ever find yourself really placing your hope, your, your ultimate confidence, and really your, your source of true joy in, in something that you support or someone you support winning? Does that change the perspective of your soul? Just a few weeks ago, uh, we sang a, a hymn that I think many of us would say is one of our favorite hymns. The hymn is, It Is Well, right? It Is Well. Interestingly, the first two stanzas of It Is Well speak of four conditions of life. You ever thought about this? So this, the hymn begins, well, you know how it begins, right? When peace like a river attends my way. Okay, so four conditions. The first one is a good condition, peace. When sorrows like sea billows roll, so not a good condition, right? Undesirable. So peace, sorrow. Now the second stanza, how does that one begin? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come. Four conditions. One, desirable, good, peace. Three, pretty bad, right? So sorrows, Satan, trials. And then we sing, let this blessed assurance control. So we're, we're acknowledging that when, when life is good, peace like a river, when, when life is not good, Sorrows, Satan, trials. Whatever my lot, God's taught because, he's taught me because there's this blessed assurance. What's the blessed assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate. Look at Titus 3, 4. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Christ regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Now we sing that on Sunday, right? And then if you're anything like me, the temptation of a week, whether it's political or not, is, is when things don't go well, then to forget the blessed assurance that ought to control us, right? Maybe a good question for you to ask uh, people who know you well, ask someone who knows you well, is, is ask that person, what, what really brings me satisfaction? If you're, if you're married, maybe ask your spouse that. Or if you're not married, ask someone who's really close with you, maybe someone who lives with you. What is it that, that I get, find true delight in? Or the opposite, what causes me great distress? What gets me worked up the, the other way? And for, for many people, including many Christians, we are tempted to place our hope in political change rather than in God. We're tempted to despair when our policies and our politicians don't prevail. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do, isn't it? It's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Now, this temptation, of course, is, is not new. It's also not unique to, to us. Okay, so you maybe have heard of Andrew Fuller. Here's a sketch of Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller was a pastor in Great Britain in the early 1800s. So not American, not modern, not contemporary. And in 1801, Andrew Fuller was perplexed by a problem that he observed in many Christians. In a short book called The Backslider, Fuller explored the causes behind a person who had once appeared to be zealous and devoted to God, but who had now lost that former zeal. The Backslider. According to Fuller, one of the main culprits was, quote, taking an eager and deep interest in political disputes. 
Now, no, the problem for Fuller was not politics. Fuller certainly understood the God-ordained necessity of government in a sinful world. Fuller had no problem with Christians participating in the political process as concerned citizens. But what mystified Fuller was the way that many Christians of his day became inordinately, that's an important word, inordinately obsessed with politics. In his words, politics became their meat and their drink. And really Fuller is expressing something that Jonathan Edwards, the the American pastor, called affections, the affections of a person. What are our affections? Our affections are, are more than emotions. Affections are what drive us to act the way that we do. Our affections reveal the true devotion of our soul. So for Christians, our affections will be driven by, by love and desire toward God, toward the things of God, right? But affections become disordered, not only when they're directed toward evil things, but also when our affections are inordinately directed toward good things out of proportion. Who can understand something of this in your own life? Maybe it's not politics, but, but there are good things that, that God has blessed us with And those are a temptation for you to place in an inordinate position in your life. And the reality is that good things out of proportion choke out God's word. You can turn there if you want. I have it on the screen. But listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 4. This is the story of the four soils, right? The sower who went forth to sow. And some of the soil fell on on thorny ground. And when the, his followers, Jesus' followers asked him, tell us what that, that parable, what that story means. Jesus says, Mark 4, verse 18, others are the ones sown among thorns. Now, listen to what, what's characteristic of, of these people. They are those who hear the word. They don't reject the word. They hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Have you ever applied this to to your life? I think when we hear the story of the the four soils, we're we're so tempted to think, well, we're the last one, right? Right? Like the word's taking root and and we're growing. And and praise God, I believe that's true for, for many, if not most of us. And yet there's a type of person, Jesus says there's a category of person who hears the word. But, but the cares of the world, and in our topic for tonight, specifically political issues, choke out God's word. I think it's worth asking ourselves, do the cares of this world, maybe even our desires for political change... Going back to the last category, desires for other things, desires for change in politics. Are those things threatening to choke out God's word in my life, in your life? How can we guard against this? How can we guard against anything but our topic tonight, political engagement? How can we guard against that choking out God's word? In your handout, you see, uh, first, I think it's wise for us to, to measure our intake. To just look at what we take in in a given week. So this could include news media, podcasts. It can include friends, books, 
political social media, partisan sources. I think it's wise for us to just measure our intake and to ask ourselves, do you hear from politicians and political sources more than you hear from God? Maybe add up all the minutes that you take in content in the course of a week and and look at it. Like, am I hearing other voices more than I'm hearing God? Do you take in more political information than you take in the Bible? And this intake, it it affects us, right? It affects us. One way to assess how it affects us is to then consider, consider your thoughts. What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? There are some people here who are like, I wish I had nothing to think about. (laughs) I have everything to think about. But, But when your mind wanders, where does it go? Do you meditate on on polls and policies more than you meditate on God's word? Do you spend more time thinking about politics than you spend thinking about Jesus? Our intake is going to affect what we think about. Our thoughts are going to both follow our affections and they're going to direct our affections. What we take in will affect what we think about and will even direct what we love. So to wrap up this this first category of identity, what should we do when we find ourselves uh, fearful, maybe even placing our our ultimate hope in politics, and and we we feel ourselves slipping away from trusting in God, instead trusting towards some kind of of change or, or political aim, what should we do? Well, we should remember and obey Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And this is so much more, and it's so much deeper than just uh, find joy in hard things. Here, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, is talking about, like, ultimate faith. Place your ultimate joy, confidence, hope, trust in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness, in other translations say gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He is near. He has not left this world or our nation to, to like find its way. He's sovereign. He's near. So don't be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So choosing to to rejoice in the Lord is choosing to believe that that what you have in him is greater and stronger than any disappointment. And it's greater and stronger than any accomplishment or achievement or victory that this world could ever give. I want you to imagine uh, your life right now. But the one difference is that every time you cast a vote for any candidate or for any policy, every vote you ever cast in any election, always lost. Like every time you go through your entire life and never once does a candidate or a policy uh, win, one that you vote for. Do you believe that Jesus is better than that? Now think, what if, what if every time you voted your candidate or your policy won? Every single time. Every single time, your whole life. I mean, how great would that be, right? Do you believe that Jesus is better than that? That's what it means to place our ultimate faith, hope, confidence in in the gospel. 
rather than something of, of this world. Now, our identity, this first category, is going to, to be seen in our, secondly, in our interaction. Right? Identity is more our own thoughts and, and trust and hope and confidence. But it's going to affect the way we interact with others. So we're here in Titus 3. We're going to look at the first two verses of Titus 3. And for sake of context, especially if you've been in Sunday school, you know this. But here, Titus 3 verses 1 and 2 are speaking of Christians' responsibility toward, we'll say, the world, society. This includes non-believers, right? Non-Christians. So verse 1, Paul tells Titus, remind them... To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. As we interact with others, and here the specific context is with with non-Christians, our words, whether spoken or typed, whether said with our tongue or said with our thumbs, our words ought to match the command here in Titus 3 verse 2. To speak evil of no one. Other translations would say to slander no one. No one. Like not even the person who disagrees with you on everything. Like not even that person. To avoid, avoid, like actively avoid quarreling. Of the translations would say to be peaceable, to avoid fighting. Next, to be gentle. It means to be considerate, to be kind. So again, our interaction... In this area, that's what we're talking about tonight is political engagement. Our interaction in this area, according to this verse, is to be considerate, kind, to be gentle. And then finally, what a a great way to summarize our interaction, this last phrase. But what a challenging command to show perfect courtesy toward the people we agree with. No, no, toward, toward all people. For all people. The Bible's commands regarding our communication cover all of our interaction, whether it's in person, face to face, or or it's online. So it's worth us taking these commands about communication and thinking, okay, how do I interact with people about politics? Does Titus 3 2 characterize my communication, my words regarding politics? Face-to-face, online, other, other mediums, or it's not mediums, it's media. Colossians 4, 6 also is in the context of unbelievers, because Colossians 4, 5 talks about walking in wisdom toward outsiders. And Colossians 4, 6 begins, let your speech always, 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 let your speech always be gracious, be gracious. Now, these two passages, Titus 3.2 and, and Colossians 4.6, are specifically in the context toward our communication with, with non-Christians. 
Let's look at a passage that speaks directly about our communication with, with Christians then. And again, we're just trying to take the Bible and apply it directly to, to this area of political engagement. Let's turn to Ephesians. You can keep a finger in Titus. We'll come back to Titus. But turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that we can't take Ephesians 4 and apply it to non-Christians. I, I think we can and should. But the immediate context is, is to Christians. Because Ephesians chapter 4 begins with unity in the body of Christ. So then we get to the end of chapter 4. That's the, that's the context. So here's how we're supposed to treat other Christians. And as we read this, let's, let's seek to apply it to political engagement. Verse 25, Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Jump down to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. From this passage, we can really come up with a little exercise that we should ask ourselves before we say anything. But as I go through these questions, this little exercise, I want you to think about applying it to your life before you say or post or retweet or type anything about, about politics. So, so first, from verse 25, do you know for sure that it is the truth? Do you know for sure that it is true from verse 26 we should ask ourselves before we say or, or or type anything am i sinfully angry am i sinfully angry in this moment before i say this before i, I write this am i sinfully angry verse 29 we should ask are, are my words are your words are they corrupting are they good for building up are they good for building up? Are they fitting for the occasion? Middle of verse 29. Do, do my word, what I'm about to, to type or say, does it, does it fit this occasion? And then next, do, do my words, are my words giving grace to the person who hears or reads them? Thinking of the audience, right? Are, are these words giving grace to everyone? Everyone who might hear this or, or read this. From verse 31, we should ask, are my words bitter? Are they angry? Are they slanderous? Am I full of wrath or clamor? From verse 32, are, are these words I'm about to say or type, are these words kind? Do they reveal a, a tender heart, a heart that's ready to forgive? What an exercise in communication. I want to highly commend to you uh, 
a Sunday school series that Tim Denny taught about five years ago in our church. You can find it on our church website. If you go to the series drop-down menu, it's titled Communication. It's a seven-week Sunday school series that Tim taught on communication. And toward the end of that series, he distributed these little bookmark cards. Some of you maybe have this or you had this at some point. And I'm going to quote Tim here and read the back of the card because he uses the acronym MEDIA to ask some questions based on passages about our words. So on the one side, it says social media principles. And on the other side, uh, media is the acronym. Tim, I didn't ask for your permission. Thank you for being tenderhearted and forgiving and letting me. <laughs> so M is for message. The question is, is this the right message? Are my words gracious? E, edification. Will my words build up? D, demolition. Will my words tear down? I, impact. How will my words impact others? Again, thinking of the audience, thinking of the hearer, the reader, which leads to A, audience. Is this the right audience for my message? I've had this in my Bible since that Sunday school series five or so years ago, and it's good for me to to see it and to remind myself of, of these principles. So tonight we've considered our identity. Our identity leads to the way that we interact with people about politics. And now our final category is our involvement. How we actively involve ourselves in, in politics. So turn back to Titus chapter 3 now. Back to Titus 3. And the first, uh, the first point here really is from Philippians 4, uh, which we already read. But Philippians 4 tells us that all of us should pray. All of us should pray. When it comes to our engagement with politics, all of us, Philippians 4 verse 6 says, should not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we should let our requests be made known to God. So that's a command given to every Christian. We should pray, not be anxious. When we think about the political scene, not be anxious, but instead pray. Secondly, I believe from Titus 3, one implication from these verses is that all who are able should vote. Let's read from Titus 3, beginning in verse 8. We'll read down through through verse 10. Titus 3, 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful To devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful He is self-condemned. Do you see how verses 8 and 9 end? There's a little bit of uh, parallelism there. So there are things in verse 8, these good works, these things are excellent and profitable. What's the opposite of profitable? Unprofitable. That's how verse 9 ends. There are things that are unprofitable and worthless. They're not excellent. They're worthless. So I believe God... And his infinite wisdom used this parallelism to draw our attention to, to what verses 8 and 9 are saying. 
I believe in our society today, we've been given this amazing opportunity and stewardship of, of voting. Most people throughout human history have not had this stewardship. They've not. We are privileged. We are blessed to be able to do this. And one way to devote ourselves to good works, or from the end of verse 1 of chapter 3, to be ready for every good work, one way, I believe, is, is to, to vote, to steward our earthly citizenship by voting in a way that reflects our heavenly citizenship. Now, as we vote, we must remember that not every Christian will always vote the same way that we do. And that is as it should be. Not every Christian will always vote the exact same way that, that I do. And that is as it should be. Because we vote for things that are not directly tied to a biblical command or principle. So in my reading on this topic, I often came across this concept of what's called straight line issues and jagged line issues. And I won't bore you with all the details. If you want to talk more about it, we can. Uh, but the, the principle is this. There are some issues where there's a biblical or theological principle that we make a straight line judgment to where the whole church, and here I don't mean like our church, but Christians, the, the universal church, would agree with the Bible on a certain thing. I'll give you one recent clear example. Okay? In our state, we had Proposal 3 on the ballot back in November. And from the Bible, we believe that the murder of unborn children is wrong. And so we believe and we encourage our, our church to vote no on proposal three. It's a straight line judgment. It might be probably the only chance in our lifetimes when we will ever be able to cast a vote directly on a, a policy like that. Often we're voting for people who make those decisions. Here we actually got a chance to vote for the actual decision. And so... So we believe that's a straight line judgment. Then there are lots of things that are jagged line judgments. So there's a biblical principle involved or more than one involved for sure. And, and yet it's not directly connected to a specific yes or no vote. Let me give you another example. Okay. Tax rates. The Bible talks about taxes, right? What does the Bible say about taxes? It says to pay them. Okay. Does it say like how much, like what the percentage is of our income that should come out of our paycheck? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say what our taxes should be used for? There's some principles about, you know, you can see in Romans from about uh, or the principles of, of rewarding the good and punishing the evil. Okay. But should taxes be used to build roads? And if so, which roads? And if so, how should they be built? And if so, when should they be resurfaced? And like, these are issues where the biblical principle and the specific position it's a jagged line. Does that make sense? Okay. And so just acknowledge that, that when we vote, as we vote, not every Christian will always vote the same way, the exact same way every time as, as you do or, or as I do. And, and that's the way it should be. If you want more on this, I can recommend some reading. Or you can just go back and listen to a couple Sunday School series that we did on the conscience and, and on the topic of how important is it. Finally, finally, some... Some should serve in public office. One way to be ready for every good work. That's from verse one. One way to devote yourself to good work from verse eight is to serve in our community. That's one way to do it. 
There are dozens of good opportunities right now in Lapeer where Christians can just step into a role and serve the community. You don't even have to campaign. You just volunteer and just serve. If you are willing to serve others with little recognition and no pay, I can recommend many different ways to do this in our community. And often you can have a much greater impact through serving locally than you do through, through voting a couple times a year. But it's not an either or, okay? It's a, it's a both and, right? So if you want to influence our society in ways that are, verse 8, excellent and profitable for people, then, then serve people in our community in ways that you can live out verses 1 and 2 of Titus 3. With perfect courtesy, speaking evil of no one, ready for every good work, avoiding quarreling, gentle. Now, these, of course, what I'm speaking of right now are, are volunteer opportunities. But it's, it's serving in our community. And there are some who, I believe, as Christians, should serve in, in elected positions. It's not for everyone. I've never served in, in an elected position. I know some people who have. From what I know, it's not easy at all. And there are some strong temptations that are unique to that sort of a position. So it's not for everyone. But if more public servants were faithful followers of Jesus, if more public servants were living out the great commands to love God and love others, then more good would be done in our society. So all of us should pray. All who are able should vote. I meant to comment on why I say all who are able. Obviously, there are voting laws. And so if you're not supposed to vote, uh, don't vote. Uh, don't break the law. But then I also don't believe it's right for Christians to guilt other Christians into voting if there are more important things that are happening in their life. Let me give you one example, or actually two examples. Okay? I have a good friend who was planning to vote in a recent election. He was on his way to the poll and he got in a car accident and ended up in the hospital. I don't believe he's like held accountable for not vote. Like it wasn't sin for him to not vote in that election. I really believe that. Okay. Providentially hindered. Also, I know people who, uh, because you know, their relative was in, in, uh, in another state, I can't talk, another state needed some help. So they flew to care for a loved one or a friend and they missed election day and it was too late to get an absentee ballot and all this stuff. And again, I don't think we should say blanket you know, every Christian who misses any election is in sin. No, there, there are things like that, that where a priority that's more important takes, takes precedence. But if, if you're able, it's worth prioritizing. And I believe strongly it's worth prioritizing every chance to vote. So you'll hear in the, the end of next year how important it is to vote in the, in the national election, right? And that is important. But primaries are important. The weird times we have elections in the spring for like random little things, those are important. And in fact, based on the numbers, uh, your vote usually means more in those elections because fewer people vote. So you actually have a higher percentage impact in those kinds of elections than you do in the, the big national election. Again, it's not an either or, it's a, it's a both and. So that's why I say all who are able should vote. And then some should serve in public office. If you have questions about this or, or corrections, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, this is the first time I've taught on this in a formal way. I've taught on it in some other contexts, but 
Uh, I have been really grateful for the chance to think about Titus and to apply it to, to this area of our lives. It's a matter of, of discipleship. It's a matter of following Jesus. I commend the other three pages to you from Pastor Jason Shea. I think they're really helpful. I worked my way through all of them um, and just trying to assess myself and trying to follow Jesus faithfully in, in this area. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then Gene will come, and we'll sing one more hymn, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And now we pray that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers. Father, I pray that we would resist temptation to place our hope in anything or anyone other than you. I pray that our interaction, our communication with others would be marked by what we read in Colossians 3, verse 2, and Ephesians 4, and Colossians 2, 6. And Father, I pray that we would be faithful to pray, to vote as much as we are able, and for some, maybe even some in this room, uh, to serve and to do good in our community. All for your glory and, and for the good of others, that these things would be excellent and profitable for all people. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for reaching into our darkness. When we were foolish and disobedient and led astray, your goodness and loving kindness appeared, and we are so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.